Welcome to CUCC's Sermons for Everyone. No matter who you are or where you find yourself on life's journey, we're glad you've tuned in, and we hope you find meaning in this week's sermon. Well, we are halfway through the story of Ruth and Naomi. And we have read every last word of the first two chapters, and we have found little moments to step outside of the story and to talk about life and, and loss. And there's been plenty to talk about as, as Ruth and Naomi have, have been through the ringer. A famine forced Naomi to flee her family land. As they attempted to start a new life in a foreign country, her husband Elimelech dies, and then shortly after, her two sons also die. She has lost everything. She's empty. And so, along with her also widowed Midianite daughter-in-law, she returns to her hometown of Bethlehem. And it's been too much, right? She's lost too much. She's experiencing such immense grief that that it becomes hard for her to imagine a life that is good again. In fact, when she first returns back to her hometown, someone recognizes her and calls out to her, Naomi, and she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, right? She says, you might as well change my name to the bitter one because, because I don't think I'll be Naomi again. She's in pain. She's grieving. And I wonder, have you all heard of the five stages of grief? Head nod. That's a bunch of you, right? Or at least, at least you've heard of it as a concept, as a way of, of describing a, a normative experience with loss. Now, it's, a, it's important to note there is no truly normative way to grieve, even still, Many of our reactions to loss contain similar expressions. Maybe not in the same order, maybe not all of them, but, but we likely spend some time in, in some of these five stages of grief. And I gotta tell you, from my personal experiences of dealing with, with painful loss, naming these stages helped me feel like I wasn't going crazy, right? That I wasn't losing it, that I was, I was just grieving. I wasn't broken. So this morning, I thought we could lightly touch on these five stages of grief and try layering them over our story and just see where that takes us. And so the first stage of grief and loss is denial and isolation. How could this happen? This makes no sense. That can't possibly be true. All things that that we think or or say or feel. Sometimes it's our body responding with denial. To our surprise, we feel nothing at all. It's like our, our body isn't ready to accept what just happened. Another form of denial is isolation. Grief can cause us to turn inwards, to push other people out. You don't want to hear their life experiences. You don't want them to ask questions or have them try to comfort you. On the heels of loss, Naomi immediately tries to push out the only people in her life. 
Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Return home, my daughters. Look, your sister-in-law already went home to her people and her God. Go back with her. It's normal. It's so human. You don't want to fight it. You don't want to force it. But eventually, you do move through it. Eventually, Naomi lets people in. Eventually, we all need to talk about what happened. And the thing is, talking about what happened can trigger the next stage of grief, anger. Anger towards the person or the thing you lost. Anger towards the illness or the institution that took them. Anger towards yourself, towards God. Anger towards nothing, right? That has no place to land and no end in sight. Naomi screams for all to hear, the Lord's hand has turned against me. The Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. Naomi's loss is real, and she is rightfully furious. As a society, and and I think maybe even more so as a church, we don't leave a lot of room for anger. We don't have many hymns about being pissed off or, or many prayers that lay into God. The book of Psalms is full of them. They just happen not to be the ones we read to our kids or proclaim on Easter morning. Thankfully, Naomi felt free to speak her anger to give voice to her rage, to shake her fist at the heavens, to let God know what she thought of all of it, because friends, it's so normal. It's so human. You don't want to fight it. You also don't want to force it, but eventually you do move through it. After Naomi's anger, she sort of fades from the story. Right, well, Ruth is gleaning in the fields during the months of the barley and the wheat harvest. We don't know what Naomi's up to, but if I had to guess, if I were to guess, I guess that she was probably caught up a little bit in the other, the next two stages of grief, in bargaining and in depression. Bargaining with herself. If my life turns around, I'll never do that thing again. Bargaining with God. Right, if... If you step in and take away my pain, right, or or provide for my needs or answer my prayer, I will go to church every Sunday. I'll read my Bible every morning. I'll, I'll always believe in you. And the problem with bargaining, the third stage of grief, is that when it doesn't work, it often leads to the fourth stage, depression. That long-lasting, heavy-as-a-weighted blanket doesn't make any sense but won't go away type of sadness. These feelings can stick around and resurface for a long time. It, It can cause you to wonder if you'll ever be yourself again, if you'll ever laugh or smile again. And I think it's worth noting that when, when depression arises as a result of grief, It's likely not a sign of mental illness. It's simply the body's response to trauma. Unless it's impaired your ability to function or your desire to carry on with life, it's a very normal response to loss. It's a human response to loss. As hard as it may be, you don't want to fight it. You don't want to force it. 
eventually you will move through it. The book of Ruth doesn't tell us what those harvest months were like for Naomi. But I would bet there was some bargaining and some depression. Ruth's been working in Boaz's field for the barley and wheat harvest. She's been working hard to provide for both of them. And then suddenly we get to Ruth chapter 3. And Naomi takes center stage. Together we can read. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I seek security for you so that things might go well for you? And we pause just to recognize for a second, this is the first time we've seen Naomi take an active role in this story. My daughter, shouldn't I find security for you so that things might go well for you? In the slightest way, she seems to have shifted her language from isolation, anger, and all the bargaining and depression towards thinking positively about the future and and thinking about someone else. Her language shifts from, I am empty, I am bitter, the Lord has been horrible to me, to Ruth, "Don't, don't you think it's time I find you some security, a.k.a. don't you think it's time I find you a a husband so that things might go well for you? This is huge. It doesn't mean that Naomi's done grieving, but it, it does appear that she has a hopeful imagination for the future. Maybe tomorrow will be better than yesterday, and even more so, maybe I can play a role in making your tomorrow better than your yesterday. As an aside, friends, if you want to kick a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, do something to make someone else's day, week, or month better, and you'll be shocked how much of an impact it has on you. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said, my daughter, shouldn't I seek security for you so that things might go well for you? Now, isn't Boaz, whose young women you were with, our relative? Tonight, he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. You should bathe, put on some perfume, and some nice clothes, and then go down to the threshing floor. Don't make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then, when he lies down, notice the place where he is lying. Then go uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Naomi certainly sees an active role for herself. In fact, she's kind of taken on the role of conductor, of matchmaker, like mother-in-laws often do. She's got this whole thing planned out. (laughs) Now let's get a couple things straight here. Naomi is not encouraging Ruth to manipulate or seduce Boaz. Sure, she tells her to take a bath, put on some perfume, not wear the frumpy sweater this time. Sure, she tells her to to wait until he's finished working, eating, and drinking. And sure, she tells her to, to lay down next to him without him even noticing. And as suspicious as it all sounds, she's simply trying she's not trying to trick Boaz. She's simply trying to approach him humbly. You see, Boaz is a relative, and at the time, in their culture, if a woman was widowed without children, the community would look to the husband's closest relative to to care for the widow, marry her even. And since we're being honest here, yeah, Boaz, 
most likely already had a family. He likely already had a wife and kids. But again, it was not uncommon at the time or particularly in these type of situations that someone might have more than one wife. And while we're continuing being honest, yeah, there was probably a pretty big age gap. Right, Boaz refers to her as his daughter throughout the book. Uh, and he tells her to stay close to his young women. Right, and there's more language to come to, to point towards this not uncommon, but maybe surprising age gap. The point of all this honesty is to dispel any sensational tellings of this story. This isn't the real housewives of the barley fields. Naomi is not telling Ruth to manipulate or seduce an older relative into doing something that he shouldn't do. That's not it. As hard as it might be for us to wrap our minds around, Naomi is helping Ruth understand the cultural setups of her people. She's giving Ruth information. She's letting her know about a way up, a way out. And while I'm not sure that this is what Ruth had in mind when she said, your people will be my people, let's see how she responds to Naomi's advice. Ruth replied to her, I'll do everything you're telling me. So she went down to the threshing floor and she did everything just as her mother-in-law had ordered. Boaz ate and drank and, and he was in a good mood. He went over to lie down by the edge of the grain pile. Then she quietly approached, uncovered his legs and laid down. During the middle of the night, the man shuddered and turned over and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. She replied, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread out your robe over your servant because you are a redeemer. We'll pause again because there's some tricky language in this section. Once again, from everything I've read and studied, none of this is intended to be seductive. This is an act of humility on Ruth's part as she even introduces herself as, as your servant. The image of spreading a robe or a cloak over someone, especially in the context of marriage, was, was not uncommon. In fact, it was often used as a symbol of protection, of care, of adoption even. Maybe you can draw to mind the scene from, from one of Jesus' most famous parables where the father puts his robe, his cloak around the prodigal son as a symbol of, of welcoming him back into the home. You see, Ruth is asking to be brought into his care, his protection. She's asking to be brought into his home, his family, friends. On the most basic level, Ruth is proposing and she's justifying this proposal by saying, you are a redeemer. And this goes back to our earlier conversation. Ruth says, you're a redeemer. You are my husband's relative, which means you can step in. You can marry me. You can redeem me. And as we'll learn next week, a redeemer also means you redeem my family's land and possessions. This is a loaded proposal. And so Boaz turned over and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. She replied, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread out your robe over your servant because you are a redeemer. He said, may, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. 
You have acted even more faithfully than you did at first. You haven't gone after younger men, rich or poor. Right, another clue to the surprising yet not unaccustomed age gap. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do everything you are asking. Indeed, my people, all who are at the gate, they know that you are a woman of worth. Now, although it is certainly true that I'm a redeemer, there is a redeemer who is a closer relative than I am. Stay the night, and in the morning, if he redeems you, good, let him redeem. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Lie down until the morning. Now, isn't that what every girl wants to hear after they've proposed? (laughs) Thank you, I'm flattered. You're too kind for proposing to me instead of chasing young guys. But here's the deal. There's another guy who has first dibs on you. So I'm going to find him, ask him if he wants you. If he does, great, he can have you. If not, then as God is my witness, if no one else wants you, I myself will marry you. Now get some sleep. I'll tell you who you'll marry in the morning. (laughs) So she lay at his feet until morning. She got up before anyone could recognize her, for he said to her, no one should know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He said, bring the cloak that you have on, hold it out. She held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and placed it upon her. Then she went into town. She came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who said, how are you? my daughter. And Ruth told her everything Boaz had done for her. She said, he gave me these six measures of barley for me to, and said, don't go away empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Sit tight, my daughter, Naomi replied. Wait until you know how it turns out. The man won't rest until he resolves the matter today. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Ruth's no joke. She could have gone back to her hometown, her own people. Instead, she attaches her life to her mother-in-law. She's been working her tail off to provide enough food for both of them. She gets freshened up, sneaks into a men's only workplace, Waits until the work and the food and the drinks have put everyone asleep, and then she lays next to the boss, the owner of the entire farm, who might have been twice her age, and she's trusting that it's all going to work out. And friends, this is no guaranteed deal. Sure, the Bible makes conditions for this type of redeeming, but the Bible also makes conditions for gleaning, if you remember last week. But that doesn't mean that every farmer, right, or every field is safe, is playing along. Ruth takes on all this risk as she proposes to Boaz. It's a huge sign of trust, a sign of loyalty, a sign of humility. And since we're being honest... It's also a huge sign of desperation. Ruth doesn't have many options. She's not going to be able to side hustle her way out of abject poverty. And so the risk is worth it. And I know it sounds archaic, but even so, it's also really freaking gutsy. 
and brave. And we're going to find out next week how it plays out. Sounds like Ruth's getting married. (laughs) We just don't know to who yet. We call that a cliffhanger. In the meantime, I'd like to finish by just circling back to Naomi for a second. Friends, Naomi's not done grieving, but she's back in the story. She's going to be back in next chapter, too. She seems to be imagining a brighter future for tomorrow, for Ruth and for herself. There's no assumption that this will erase pain, change the past. It's just we're entering a new layer of her story, a new chapter she's beginning to write. And if Naomi's anything like the rest of us, grief just keeps coming back. It keeps resurfacing. Today can be so much better than yesterday, but yesterday still happened. And there's going to be plenty of tomorrows that are going to be really hard too. Even when we begin to see a new chapter being written, we don't ever graduate from the stages of grief. But we do move through them. And then sometimes we find ourselves circling back and moving through them again and again. And as I already said, from my experience with pain and loss and grief, as we go through it again and again, it can be helpful to name where it is we find ourselves, even if it's again. Huh. Seems like some isolation sneaking back up in my life. Man, I thought I was done bargaining, but there I go again. Yeah, that feels like another wave of anger, another wave of depression. It's okay. It's so normal. It's so human. It's all part of it. You don't want to fight it. You don't want to force it. But eventually, you do move through it, even if you end up moving through it again and again. Guys, without giving away the end of the story, the book of Ruth will finish next week, and it finishes with one of my favorite curveballs in the entire Bible. It's something that you won't see coming. We're going to connect some dots. Until then, be gentle with yourself. Whether you find yourself surprised by grief this week, or you find yourself circling back for round two or round 32, be gentle with yourself. You don't want to fight it. You don't want to force it. But you eventually will move through it. Amen.